welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and contributor at places like The Dispatch, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. Finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave those reviews. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. In this week's show, I'm going to talk about the resignations of Barry Weiss and Andrew Sullivan, both opinion makers in elite media who are forced out by the woke mob at the New York Times and New York Magazine, respectively. And then in the next segment, we'll discuss the latest numbers on the coronavirus and wrap up this week's show with a light items segment talking about comedians that I'm enjoying currently on social media. So this week, I, just, uh, I thought about naming this first segment this week the ever-widening divisions in elite media because it truly describes where we are right now. Because the political divisions in the press specifically, among journalists and I mean, between institutions, the divisions there have grown huge. A great deal of discussion about what happens in elite media circles is just gratuitous navel-gazing. For the most part, it's just journalists talking about themselves, and most of it's not very important. When we discuss problems in the press or the media, it's usually in a much broader context that may or may not involve specific journalists. That wasn't true of this past week. This week, we saw a rather seismic event, all things considered. You had Barry Weiss on one side, a moderate opinion editor who's much maligned on the left, and she was forced out of the New York Times and published an absolutely scathing resignation letter. And over at New York Magazine, Andrew Sullivan, the left-leaning conservative, was forced out, and he graciously took the exit. And as an aside, New York Magazine is owned by Vox Media, who you might know by Vox, Ezra Klein, and all the folks over there. So, why are these two events important? Well, that's why it's because it's the why these two people were forced out. Not just they were they were forced out overall. It's the reason why, and the reason why is over their politics. Now, the thing to note about both of them is that neither of them is what you would call a far right conservative. Both of them are at best center right commentators. Really, in the they're more like center left. I don't really consider either of them true conservatives, but they were still forced out for being too conservative. So we're going to start out with the New York Times here. Barry Weiss started working as an opinion page editor for the New York Times in 2017 as part of the Times' overall effort to bring in more alternative voices to explain why Donald Trump won in 2016. 
Now, she previously worked at the Wall Street Journal and was considered, at the time, more center-right to moderate, especially when you're comparing her to the overall coverage at the New York Times. She's not a bomb-throwing conservative, like I said, and she doesn't support Donald Trump. Also, what's important as we're going to go through her letter here, she's also Jewish, and that comes up a lot in this letter about her that she wrote, and she's also a strong supporter of Israel. And if you followed either my, any of my writings or just any general critical coverage of the Times overall, you know that they have had issues with anti-Semitism and so forth. So this entire flare-up over her leaving the New York Times came on the heels of the main editorial page editor, James Bennett. He was forced to resign as well after he ran an op-ed by Republican Senator Tom Cotton that called for the U.S. military to get used to quell riots happening in major cities. Now, you have to remember, that all happened in early June. So this is this is sort of the next round of that. You had the fallout of Tom Cotton's op-ed, and now you have the fallout of Barry Weiss. So those, these are the, these, none of this is all happening in a vacuum. This is a progression of events. So... This past week, what happened is that Barry Weiss submitted her resignation letter. She submitted it to the New York Times and then posted it on her personal website for everyone to read and shared it on social media. And although I can describe it, it is really, it's really better to let her words do the work here. So I'm going to read quite a significant portion of this just because it is stunning what she describes happening at the New York Times. And it's, it's just the depth and the fire that she comes out with what she describes here is something and to behold. So here is what she wrote in her resignation letter. And I've, I've gone and targeted a few paragraphs here, which really go after what her point was. She says, I joined the paper with gratitude and optimism three years ago. I was hired with the goal of bringing in voices that would not otherwise appear in your pages, first-time writers, centrists, conservatives, and others who would not naturally think of the Times as their home. The reason for this effort was clear. The paper's failure to anticipate the outcome of the 2016 election meant that it didn't have a firm grasp of the country that it covered. Dean Banquet and others have admitted as much on various occasions. That priority in the opinion pages was to help redress that critical shortcoming. But the lessons that ought to have followed the election, the lessons about the importance of understanding other Americans, the necessity of resisting tribalism, and the centrality of the free exchange of ideas to a democratic society, have not been learned. Instead, a new consensus has emerged in the press, but perhaps especially at this paper, that truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job it is to inform everyone else. Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. As the ethics and mores of that platform have become those of the paper, the paper itself has increasingly become a kind of performance space. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences, rather to allow a curious public to read about the world and draw their own conclusions. I was always taught that journalists were charged with writing the first rough draft of history. Now, history itself is one more ephemeral thing molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. 
My own forays into wrong think have made me the subject of constant bullying by colleagues who disagree with my views. They have called me a Nazi and a racist. I have learned to brush off comments about how I'm, unquote, writing about the Jews again. Several colleagues perceived to be friendly with me were badgered by coworkers. My work and my character were openly, openly demeaned on company-wide Slack channels where masthead editors regularly weigh in. There, some coworkers insist I need to be rooted out if this company is to be a truly inclusive, quote-unquote, inclusive one, while others post axe emojis next to my name. Still other New York Times employees publicly smear me as a liar and a bigot on Twitter with no fear that harassing me will be met with appropriate action. They never are. There are terms for all of this. Unlawful discrimination, hostile work environment, and constructive discharge. I'm no legal expert, but I know that this is wrong. So that's her describing the treatment that she gets, and then she continues a little further down into this. It took the paper two days and two jobs to say that the Tom Cotton op-ed fell short of our standards. Quote, We attached an editor's note on a travel story about Jaffa shortly after it was published because it, quote, failed to touch on important aspects of Jaffa's makeup and history. Jaffa is a city in Israel, by the way. There is still none, no editor's note, appended to Cheryl Striad's fawning interview with the writer Alice Walker a proud anti-Semite who believes in lizard Illuminati. The paper of record is more and more the record of those living in a distant galaxy, one whose concerns are profoundly removed from the lives of most people. This is a galaxy in which, to choose just a few recent examples, the Soviet space program is lauded for its diversity, the doxing of teenagers in the name of justice is condoned, and the worst caste system in human history includes those of the United States alongside Nazi Germany. So those are stories that the time has run, where they have lauded the Soviet space program, calling it inclusive. They have doxed teenagers. They've doxed some very well-known bloggers, and they also ran a story that compared the United States to a caste system in the same breath as Nazi Germany. Those were real stories that she was pointing out here. So she ends up in the letter telling that the Times that its decision to shut down debate in this fashion will harm future generations of writers. Instead of feeling free to explore ideas and cultures, they'll just bow to the dominating spirit at the Times and never step out uh, outside of the bounds of what has already been predetermined as decent. Also, I want to re-highlight what she said earlier on. She talked about the people in the company attacking her for writing about, quote, the Jews too much. That was one of their specific things they did not like about her because she supported Israel, she is Jewish, and she wrote from that perspective. Now, this is not the first time that the Times has had problems with this. They've run into trouble several times here in recent years, like the last few years, running articles and cartoons that are either openly or are just flat-out racist and bigoted towards Jews. So what she's describing here can't be perceived as just purely political here. There are other issues that she's describing. And it does involve some of this racial animus against Jews. And it's coming from the New York Times, the people who work there. So this is the New York Times. 
they got put on full blast, and still no one over there is taking things seriously. After trying to make changes in 2016, the New York Times has fully reverted to a pre-2016 stance, except now it's worse than ever. They've rejected all the lessons in the last four years that they claim to have learned, and now they've gone to a pre-2016 position and have rejected all of them, and now they're getting rid of anyone who claims any kind of position to the alternative. Now, it's not that they don't have some conservative voices still over there. They do. Ross Douthat and Brett Stevens are two of them, although Stevens has also grown, taken a lot of fire. Also on the grounds, because he's also Jewish, he takes some of those sets similar heat as they do, and I'm sure the amount of heat that Ross gets will go up now, now that Weiss is gone. But that is the New York Times. It's not just that they don't like ideas. They have, there are some very disturbing allegations of employment discriminations involving race here that she alleges. And for a part of the political spectrum that talks about believing all women, that talks about taking people at their word on these types of things, the ease with which you witness people just summarily dismiss everything that she said was pretty disturbing because she is not known as a liar. She's a good editor, and she did a lot of good work, both at the Wall Street Journal and at the Times. So this is a choice. You know, Charles Krauthammer famously said that decline is a choice. Well, this is a choice by the New York Times. This is a choice and a path and a direction that they have chosen. And because they are the paper of record, they do dictate this kind of coverage across the country. So what they do and they say matters for everyone else. And so if they start, you know, sending axe emojis... A-A-X-E, so literally an axe, emoji, to, you know, rioters like this, it creates some of these threatening environments. And it sounds like just straight up that it's a toxic place to work. So that's the New York Times, and that is where they are. Next up is Andrew Sullivan, the other man I mentioned. He helped create the early internet blogging revolution. So if you've been on the internet a while and read a lot of politics, you've probably ran across him because he's been in the mix pretty much throughout that entire time. So he helped build a lot of the new media stuff that you heard people talk about in the early 2000s as beyond. And since then, he's been writing his column in New York Magazine, which is owned now by Vox Media. And he's been there for a while. And Vox was originally started by Ezra Klein, a former Washington Post writer, and they've built a very large set of publications and a constellation of magazines and news sites. So it is very big on the left and in just in journalism and opinion journalism in general. So Sullivan works there. He's also a a full supporter of free speech and occasionally a conservative viewpoint. Like I said, I don't really consider him or Weiss true blue conservatives. He's He in particular, I will call an old school liberal Republican. He's not so much on the conservative side because he actively voted for Obama. He says he's going to vote for Biden and he's gay. But even with all these things, and he even goes through a list of things himself, of things that should align him with all these people. And he says that he's too conservative for Vox Media and New York magazine. 
So I'm going to go through not as many paragraphs as, as Weiss did, because hers was just fire breathing at the New York Times. But he also calls some shots here, even though he left on a little bit more of a gracious terms than Barry Weiss's fiery exit. So this is what he had to say about leaving. He says, the quality of my work does not appear to be the problem. I have a long essay in the coming print magazine on how plagues change societies, after all. I have written some of the most widely read essays in the history of the magazine, and my column has been popular with readers. And I have no complaints about my interaction with the wonderful editors and fact-checkers here. And, in fact, I'm deeply grateful for their extraordinary talent, skill, and compassion. I've been in the office maybe a handful of times over four years, so there's no question of anyone mistreating me or vice versa. In fact, I've been proud and happy to be part of this venture. What has happened, I think, is relatively simple. A critical mass of the staff and management at New York Magazine and Vox Media no longer want to associate with me, and in a time of ever-tightening budgets, I'm a luxury item they don't want to afford. And that's entirely their prerogative. They seem to believe, and this is increasingly the orthodoxy in mainstream media, that any writer not actively committed to critical theory and questions of race, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity is actively, physically harming co-workers merely by existing in the same virtual space. Actually attacking and even mocking critical theories, ideas, and methods, as I have done continually in this space, is therefore out of sync with the values of Vox Media. That, to the best of my understanding, is why I'm out of here. Two years ago, I wrote that we all live on campus now. That is an understatement. In academia, a tiny fraction of professors and administrators have not yet bent the knee to the woke program, and those few left are being purged. The latest study of Harvard University faculty, for example, finds that only 1.46% call themselves conservative. But that's probably higher than the proportion of journalists who call themselves conservative at the New York Times or CNN or New York Magazine. And maybe it's worth pointing out that conservative, in my case, means that I have passionately opposed... Donald Trump, and pioneered marriage equality, that I supported legalized drugs, criminal justice reform, more redistribution of wealth, aggressive action against climate change, police reform, a realistic foreign policy, and laws to protect transgender people from discrimination. I was one of the first journalists in established media to come out. I was a major and early supporter of Barack Obama. I intend to vote for Biden in November. It seems to me that if this conservatism is so foul that many of my peers are embarrassed to be working at the same magazine, then I have no idea what version of conservatism could ever be tolerated. And he does go on to describe a new venture that he's starting and other things like that, but that is where he is coming out here. He can't identify a single version of conservatism that would fit in with any of these people. It's not just that they don't like some point of views. It's that they reject all of them that are to the right of them. Because he's closer to them than, you know, someone like me would be, because I would disagree with him on a lot of those issues. So between Andrew Sullivan and Andrew Sullivan and Barry Weiss, it's a pretty bleak picture in elite media right now. The press has revealed what's been happening behind the scenes in these institutions, and it's just, it's not pretty. There are clear anti-conservative biases that have nothing to do with Donald Trump. 
absolutely nothing. You could take him out of the equation, and many of these places would be in the same position. What Trump may be doing is accelerating this change, but he is not the cause of it. And though the right has often talked about this bias existing, rarely has it ever been so clear for everyone to see like this, where you have all the dirty laundry being dragged out into the sunlight for everyone to see. In the newsletter this week, I talked a lot about the concept of uncertainty and about how we don't know what's going to happen in the election for, you know, just a long list of reasons. And this week, The Economist released their statistical model of the 2020 election, and they claim, and they they claim, that it shows that Joe Biden has an absolute 99% chance of winning not just right now, but overall. They would expect right now him to have a 99%. This is not one of those you know, trackers that you see like in an ESPN game where you're watching a football game where it says, oh, this team has you know, a 90% chance of winning right now, and then all of a sudden it changes. No, they're saying that right now Biden is that much of a lock, period. No other changes. It doesn't matter what's going to happen. That is the odds that he has to win. And it's the most ludicrous assertion that I've ever seen. They even got called out by numerous smart data scientist people, including Nate Silver at 538, but they refused to back down. And so this mindset is representative of the overall shift that Weiss and Sullivan have revealed for all everyone here to see. It's a viewpoint with purposeful blinders on that refuses to see anything contrary to the models they've built for the world. 2016 challenged those worldviews and shook these people to their cores, but now, as we head into the last months and weeks of the 2020 election, they fully recovered and are more adamant than they were pre-2016. Whatever happens right now, it's clear there's just a ton of pride forming the basis of the beliefs in elite institutions right now. And it'll be interesting to see, if Trump wins, how hard their bubble of reality ends up shattering. As I said this past week, I, I see considerable uncertain, uncertainty fogging up any predictions between now and November. Just There's a ton of uncertainty. There's a lot of unanswered questions. We don't know how these stories are going to pan out. Straight line projections are just about always wrong, and there's just so much ground to cover between now and then. So they're, they're refusing to see the uncertainty here because they are so certain of their own point of views. And as they're kicking out all these contrary point of views, no matter how far, how close they are to them, you have to be a progressive white person to basically line up with this view. No one else is permitted in. You have to hold that mindset, and if you don't, you're kicked out. So it's kicking out everybody, including those with more liberal views. So that's where elite media is right now. And that is why, as they dictate coverage everywhere right now, coverage is so bad on certain topics. They don't have the capacity to see outside of their own bubble. So the question is, does that get popped again like it did in 2016? If it does, the fallout from that is going to be great. And if it doesn't happen, you're going to see a very a very large hardening of these bubbles that excludes any other kind of thought, and it's going to be harder than any other time we've seen in the polarized age. So that's all I've got for this segment. After the break, we're going to come back and we'll talk about the latest on the coronavirus numbers. 
All right, so we're going to walk through the latest top-line numbers on the coronavirus as we do every week, focusing on the national numbers and then broadening out into some general observations. So this week we saw another big boost in testing. Our capacity to test increases every week, and significantly it usually increases a whole lot every three to four weeks. That's sort of the pattern that's sort of set up now. You see this slight increase week over week, and then every three or four there's a dramatic shift up, and we're seeing that again. So overall, we have tested nearly 46 million people. We're at 45 million, 45.7 million people who we've tested. And that means over this past week, we were just shy of testing 5.4 million people overall, which is an astonishing number. So total hospitalizations, which is a key metric that I follow very closely, they sit at approximately 57,000, a little over that 57 to 47. And that was an increase week over week of 4,615. Now, if you remember last week, I, I said that we had, there was a very large increase in the hospitalization numbers due to Florida dumping all their data in. And this week that has backed down a bit. So I don't know if that'll impact the, the averages just because you're going to see them trying to smooth that out a little bit. But that is still a large increase. It's just not to the extent that we have seen in other areas. And what is more disturbing here about hospitalization is that nationally we're nearing the peak number of hospitalizations that we saw in March and April. So around that around March and April we had a peak of hospitalizations in and around 60,000 people. We are very close to that at 57. So you're going to see stories coming out Probably at some point this week, I would guess either mid mid to late week, they're going to be talking about how we are now at the same place on national hospitalizations as we were in mid-March and mid-April. The, the seven-day average on deaths, though, is also a little troubling because it's gone up from around 500 a day to around 800 a day. We aren't seeing as many deaths, but it's still early in the hospitalization curve because it is still a very sharp ramp up when you're looking at hospitalizations. There's no plateau right now. So it's still early in seeing where that goes to know where the death rate is going to go because the death rate is always going to lag the hospitalization rate. So as I've explained in the past, first you have your spike on cases, then you see the lag, and then then there's a spike in hospitalizations, and then from hospitalizations to death. Those So there's a pretty large lag there between cases and deaths. And right now, we're still seeing the hospitalizations spike pretty high. And now the death rate is starting to edge up, but it has not spiked with the same intensity. Now, that can mean a lot of things. It could mean that we just haven't hit that point in the timeline. Or it could mean, you know, that we have a younger age cohort here who are making up the people in the hospital. Or it could mean that we're just better treating it, and that is you know, drawing out the number of cases that we're seeing overall, but we're not seeing as many deaths. So there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, And we don't really know what is going in there. So just keep an eye on that metric. And then after increasing for many weeks, one piece of good news is that the national positivity rate of testing is holding steady at around 8.5%. So we had bottom out 
at around 4.3, 4.4, and now that's that's not quite doubled, but we are at 8.5% on the averages. And although that's, that is a national average, that is not true when you get into specific states. So Tennessee, for instance, where I live, it has surged. So in, in mid-June, we had bottomed out around 2 to 4% of the overall cases were coming back as positive. And now the five-day average is sitting at 10.6%. So we are above the national average here. And that is true in many other states. So you have to sort of take that 8.5% with a grain of salt because it's telling you everything nationally. But the true story comes in the individual states and then in individual cities and regions of these states. And even with that steady rate of 8.5%, it still has meant that the active case numbers, so that it's not just total case count, it's the number of act people who are actively battling the virus, that is also continuing to surge across the board in many of these states. So, what's happening here? Because most people have just started ignoring the models, and I think that makes a little bit of sense right now because we don't have a clear sense of what is happening in the, in the data right now. And the models are all based on what we saw previously, and what it covered what, what's wrong with our prior data set in that first surge in March and April is first... We just flat out weren't testing enough. So we truly don't know. We saw the spike. So all those hospitalizations, most of those came in New York. We don't really know what it took to get that many number of of hospitalizations, how many people actually had it in the state of New York. The best guesstimate that I've seen is that about 25% of New York City, so the city specific, ended up getting the virus. And if that's true, it would explain the high hospitalization rate a bit because it would mean that the virus was far more prevalent than we otherwise would have expected. So the question is, are we seeing here where we're finding just straight up more of those cases that exist and hospitalizations are falling in line with a general surge and not you know, an out-of-proportion surge. We don't know the answer to that yet, and it's hard for the models to read because they don't have a great picture of what happened in March and April because we were still then trying to get our, our feet underneath us and start testing and finding the virus. Now, with that, with that, the key to here is that the backstop here is hospitalizations because it doesn't really matter if you are tested or not, if you're sick enough to end up in the hospital, you're going to end up in the hospital. So that's sort of a backstop, that even if you're not testing enough, you can look at hospitalizations and get a sort of a vague idea of whether or not you're getting a lot of cases. And in this case, we are seeing the hospitalizations to match this high testing. So, And that hospitalization number is going up quick everywhere. The caveat, as I said earlier... The first caveat is that the ICU space that we would that we needed in New York, we aren't needing this time around. So you're not seeing ICU beds get slammed and filled up real quick. And that's just because, one, we're probably catching this much earlier so we can treat it, get medications in, and calm down some of the symptoms. And also, we just we know how to treat it in general. We've learned basic things like if you're going to put somebody on, on a ventilator, you don't want to keep them on their back. You apparently want to keep them on their belly. That helps the clotting and helps lung. It just it, you get a better case outcome if you just do that one simple thing. The other thing that's happened here is that the age factor is is playing into these hospitalizations because 
for the most part, the number, the age of the people who have been going into hospital has been much lower than those who were going in before. So I'm going off my memory here, but in, when in this hit New York, the average age was somewhere between 50 and 55. And right now, the average age of a person hospitalized is somewhere between 30 and 35. So we've seen that cut down significantly. And because we know that younger people with better immune systems are able to tackle this better, it leads to better outcomes. Now, I know in the media, they always focus in on those exception cases where you have, you know, the kid who dies or the young person who dies. And those cases do happen. They admittedly do happen. But the rate at which they happen is much lower than what you would see in an older population. And then also what New York did is they just, they, their rule was that if you had it or you were sick, you were sent back to the nursing homes. So they purposely ended up infecting their nursing homes. So that raises the overall number of people who are going to end up dying from that because that was a very dumb and stupid policy for which Cuomo and de Blasio should have to answer for. So with all that, the the caveat to that on the hospitalizations, you know, with the ages, the ICU space, the one the caveat to that that I would say is that I've only seen this in Tennessee, but over the last two or three weeks, the age range of the people who are getting the virus has started to go up a little bit, or the block of people who make up the people who are infected has the the older age, those 51 and up, the, the group of that people have started increasing in the overall share. So they are making up a larger percentage of the overall infected than they did in June or really even like the first week, six, five to seven days of July. And so we've started seeing older people get it now more often. That could end up leading to worse outcomes later on if we're not careful, because you just, 15 above, you just flat out do not want anybody in that age bracket to get this virus. Yes, they can survive it, but you just, from just a raw statistical odds thing, you do not want to run that gambit. You want to keep them away from this as much as possible. Which brings us to the next major question, the million-dollar question that everyone's talking about right now, which is schools. So I'm, I'm very increasingly pessimistic that we'll see many of these large counties be able to go back. More rural and adjacent suburbs, they may be able to open up schools just because if you're in some of these rural counties or some of these further out suburbs, you're you're farther away from some of the worst parts of the pandemic. And so you can justify being open a little bit more, especially if you put masks on and you just also probably have a lower case count. But if you get into some of these major cities and some of these big suburbs, the question of whether or not you can open is is in a very tenuous position right now because you have just a very bad combination of scared parents, scared teachers, and scared administrators, and then scared school board members. And no one, out of all this group, no one wants to be the one to make the choice. There's a lot of fear and there's a lot of anger, and that leads to bad decisions and lots of fights, which is why you're not going to see anybody stop fighting about schools on social media or in your life for the next month and a half. Until we're able to figure out whether or not schools can open or not, this fight's going to go on, and if they decide to keep them closed and have people learn at home, the fight will continue over that, and it's going to get ugly on that point because 
you, we, as a society, we are built to have these schools open. We are not built to have them not functioning. And so when you take out a major part of how society works, it just funks up everything else down the line. And I understand why no one wants to make the choice here. It is totally, totally understandable why no one wants to make these decisions. And that's because there's no right answer here. There's no right choice to make. On the one hand, closing schools helps on the virus. You're preventing the spread if you keep them closed. But in turn, that's going to hurt your poor and working class families because they're not going to be set up to be able to keep their kids home. They've got to be able to send out both parents to work in most cases. And that mean, also in turn, it's also going to hurt more single parent households because they are less likely to have a place to send their kids during the day. And, you know, just going around the down effects here, women are going to be the ones who are most likely going to be bearing the brunt of kids staying home, which will also show up in economic numbers. And that's going to be true whether or not it's a single parent household or even a married household, because if you're going to have to do the homeschooling type deal, you got to have somebody there who's able to do it. And so even if you're working from home, you're likely not going to be as productive in that situation. So you're going to see this start showing up in economic numbers. So... Opening the schools, if you if you open up and send the kids there, that in turn is going to help the virus spread more freely. So this is the balancing test that you have to figure out. And I know that there are these hybrid systems where you're allowing some people and other people can send them. And, you know, that that's a good option, but you're going to end up basically achieving the best and the worst at the same time. The virus will spread, and some people are still going to be harmed from having them this partially opened like this. So there's a full list of pros and cons on both sides. This is not, and this frustrates me to no end, this is not a scientific question. There is no scientific answer to this. This is not about listening to science. This is about balancing outcomes and deciding what is best for a given community. And that is a tough decision. Because sometimes you have to, if you're in a poor community and you need those schools there to help support the poor in your community, it is probably a better idea to have those schools open. Just because you you have to be able, these kids, if they don't go, they're probably missing meals. And they've got to be able to do something during the day because there's no support system for them back at home. And they're just going to be left at home, unable to do, you know, schoolwork and other things. And also, if you're forcing them to stay home, the school systems have to distribute computers and other things like that. And I had a friend who, who posted that Davidson County, where Nashville is, they, they promised that they would be able to get computers out to all students by the end of the school year, which is not much of a promise. If you're sitting there as a parent, you're saying, at the end of the school year, what, what am I going to do with that kind of promise? So you're left here having to figure out how you're going to scramble and get all the proper technology together in order to allow your kid to do this. So there are just a litany of factors here that go well beyond this concept of science or not. This is a public policy balancing problem where we're looking at both sides. We're trying to figure out what is the best course of action to take, and there's no good answer. We're trying to take basically what is the least worst answer here to take for each one of these communities, and everybody has a different answer. Everybody has a different answer. What I tend to think is going to happen is that at some point very soon, you're going to see a spike in deaths come along, which will tilt the skills, tilt the scales, I should say, in favor of closing many schools. As I said earlier, rural school systems, rural school systems, you guys might be able to stay open. 
there might be no problem there with keeping them open. But decisions decisions on, on whether or not to open or close schools, those are going to end up happening a lot faster than you think because they've got to happen. You can't, you can't wait until August to make these decisions. If you're going to open up, you've got to make those preparations now. Preferably, you should have made them earlier, but everyone's stuck now. And when you make that decision, it may be impacted by the data that comes out that day. That's the real bad thing about this. The day you're voting on whether or not to open schools or not, that may be a day when it's just a particularly bad batch of data comes out showing that everything is bad. And so everyone ends up tilting their answer towards, well, we had a really bad day. You know, we had a lot of people die. We had a lot of new cases and hospitals are slammed. On the other side, when you go in to vote, a school board goes in to vote on this, they may have a really good day of good day of data, which says nothing to what's happening overall. So this is a very hard decision that is going to get impacted by, you know, good, bad, and ugly data all around. And so that's why when it comes to this issue specifically, I really wish people would stop all the hate. Because there's no right answer. And anyone claiming otherwise is just either outright partisan or they're just venting all this anger and fear which is in the air right now. So the thing to watch, first thing to watch are the big districts, so in the big major cities, because that's where, you know, whatever a big city does, that's going to lead the way for everyone else to follow. And so the majority of other districts will probably end up doing the same. So when you see big ones like... And Los Angeles and some of these others do that and, you know, say that they're going to close down. That's going to impact school systems elsewhere. The other thing you need to watch is the average of the seven-day death rate and any stories of hospitalizations hitting hospitals particularly hard. So if you start seeing those stories where your hospital says, we're too full, we cannot have any more patients flooding us, that is a warning flag that's going to end up impacting schools, whether or not people want it to or not. So those... Those are some of the big factors. Also, the, the other thing that can impact would be a very large report comes out of deaths. And that could happen for any number of reasons. You know, sometimes what happens is that you get a backlog of death certificates from certain counties and stuff. So it looks like there's a surge of deaths on one day, when in reality, all it is is a, a delay in the reporting. But people don't read it that way. So all of this is, you know, you're trying to do the best you can and... These are, these are just the facts that people have to deal with. So those are the factors that I think are going to be the deciding point for any school's reopening. So keep those in mind. If you're jotting things down of what to watch when people start making decisions, those are the things that are going to determine this. It won't be masks. It won't be anything else. It's going to be what do people believe is happening and where do they think the trend lines are going because we're bad at predictions, and some of these one-offs can really impact how we make those decisions. All right, we're going to take one more quick break, and then when we get back, we will we will finish up and wrap up with the light item for this week. All right, for this week's light item, one of the fun things about the internet age is that it's made it easier for new comedians to pop up and gain an audience. And I know it's not easy for them to build that audience, but those who do are usually pretty good at it. So I thought I'd highlight two of them that have popped up this week and have been pretty interesting. So the first one I want to highlight is John Christ. Now, some of you may know him because he dropped out of sight after getting accused during the Me Too fallout of misconduct towards several women. That happened last fall, I believe it was. Now, really, since those allegations came out, no one has seen or heard from him since then. And this past week, he popped up 
and he was updating his social media profiles, putting up new pictures and stuff. And then he put out a video explaining where he's been the past eight months. And he apologized for his behavior, talked through his life a little bit. And just frankly, it was good to see him back. And I hope he is better. But it was just good to see his face, know that he's alive and he's all right and hope he's doing better. Um, at the same time, you know, he, when he disappeared, he had a, a Netflix special that was getting ready to drop. And so I was really interested in seeing what was going to happen there. So uh, I don't know where any of this is going to go up, but he is a pretty funny guy. And if you're curious, it's worth heading over to his social media channels. You can watch some of his older videos, which are all funny. One of them popped up in my memories of him taking a tour around Nashville, showing off all the murals and all the poses that you have to take with all the said murals. And it was pretty funny. And that was well over a year old, and it's still hilarious. So go give him a check out. It's worth going seeing his apology video, too, because it was interesting to see a person who had to deal with that situation and is now trying to make something of a comeback because that is his career. He's not an old guy. He's a younger guy, and he's got to make a living somehow. The second guy is another comedian. He goes by Kev on stage, and he's a crazy comedian who is he's basically building his own mini empire at this point. He does a lot of reaction videos that you see. He reacts to viral content. He has his own YouTube page, podcast, whole nine yards. He he does a whole lot. But uh, the thing that he's doing right now, which caught my attention, is he got himself a wig. Now, he's a bald guy. He normally keeps his head all shaved and smooth and stuff, but he got himself a wig full of dreadlocks. Now, he doesn't call it a wig. He calls it a unit, and he's been doing his own fashion show, putting him up in a bun and just all kinds of things, and it's been hilarious to see. And he's he's a pretty funny guy overall, and it's well worth checking him out. So if you go over to Facebook or any of his or Instagram or anything like that, he he's... Kev on stage. He even does a thing on TikTok where he does uh, dad jokes, trying to purposely make his kids cringe, both at the fact that he's on TikTok and the fact that he's just doing dad jokes on there, and it's pretty funny. So those are my light items for this week. John Christ and Kev on stage, two pretty funny comedians, both of them coming out more of a church background. So if you like a little bit more of clean comedy, they're there. Um, I tend to like just about all comedy, but I think those guys are both pretty worth the while watching. So that's all I've got for this week. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Make sure to look at for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. So make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that I'll have something published from a new website this week because I've been working with one of their editors. So I may have something come up in the middle of this week, but I'm not sure at this point. So just keep an eye out for that too. I've been in the works with several pieces, both with the dispatch and a couple other places and haven't had anything published yet, but we are working on several. So thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then I am your host, Daniel Vaughn signing off for this week and I will see you guys in the next episode.